Hello and welcome back to Scottish Independence Podcasts. For our second episode of 2024, we're very grateful to Yes Sky, who hosted a Zoom meeting with Commonweal's Robin McAlpine, talking about his strategy paper for independence, which is called Direction. We'll put the link to the paper in the notes. Here's Robin to talk us through. What does it mean to be an independent country? You won't find a legal definition. There isn't an international definition. There's no way to decide that you're independent based on some sort of tick box exercise. That It doesn't work like that. Independence is something that you have when the world thinks you're independent. When all your peer nations treat you as an independent country, you're an independent country. The best proxy that we have is that you become eligible to become a member of the United Nations. What that means is you've got to get two-thirds of the General Assembly of the United Nations to support a Scottish bid to become a member. At that point, everyone everywhere will recognise that we are independent. So how do we get two-thirds of the United Nations to say, yeah, come on in Scotland? Well, there are two basic ways that you can do this. Complete and total territorial dominance. You are the only authority that is capable of operating on your territory. At that point, generally, the world goes back to the ground, realpolitik, they're independent. But I can't tell you how little I want to talk about forming armed militias and having a military coup in Scotland. So let's set that aside for a second. Which means the only other way, fast and easy and undisputed route to getting two-thirds of the United Nations to support us is to have a recognition agreement with the UK. On the other hand, very few of them are going to happily, or frankly ever, support Scottish membership without recognition of the UK. So a recognition agreement is the key. And how do you get a recognition agreement? It's not the result of a referendum. It is simply a case of, once you've achieved negotiations, you're ready to join, and to achieve negotiations, you have to put the UK in a political position where they have no option. And that is our task. Our task is to drag the United Kingdom to the negotiating table to start negotiating the terms of Scottish independence. That's it. So, how are we going to do that? The only way that I believe that's feasible is to create and demonstrate the settled will of the Scottish people and then to trigger negotiations through some sort of act which puts this debate, which forces the UK into a position where they have to recognise that this is actually what's happening. In the end, what we're looking at for achieving a settled will is to try and get people to do something they're not currently going to do, or they say that they're not going to do, which is to support Scottish independence. So what we're trying to do is get someone to do something they otherwise wouldn't do if we don't intervene. How do we know? How can we learn? What can we find about how to do that? Well, thankfully, this is one of the most lucrative and highly funded professional areas in the entire world. This is the field of advertising, marketing, sales, political strategy, political lobbying. Phenomenal amounts of research money is invested into trying to work out how you get someone to do something they otherwise wouldn't do without putting a gun at their head. There's absolutely loads of this stuff. And I want to really get your head around the extent to which this is genuinely science. Do like A-B testing. If you show a thousand people on the, the, um, one image and a thousand people on another image and they react differently, that's clear evidence that one image works better than the other. But it goes miles beyond this now. In the United States, it is comparatively routine to put people into MRI scanners, read them messages, read them advertising slogans, read them bits and pieces to watch how their brain behaves. And we've learned so much because of this. So let me give you a little example. If you ask someone to give a donation, there's a part of their brain that lights up and it's the part of the brain which is associated with rational calculation. They are broadly trying to make a decision. If you ask them to leave a legacy, the part of their brain that lights up is completely different. It's the part of the brain that is to do with imagination. And what this shows is that if you ask people to give a donation when alive, they make their decision rationally. If you ask them to leave a legacy, it all becomes about how they want to be remembered after they're dead. And we didn't know that until we started to do this research. So what we've got to do is get our act together and start to learn the research that exists and how these things work. So for example, it is undisputably the case 
that we all remember information and are more persuaded by things which are organized in narrative structures, which is another way to say stories change minds faster than facts, by statements, pictures, the whole thing. Stories are what always works. So the example I use, I think, in the book is grandkid comes back from school and tells you that he's drawn a house or he comes back and tells you he's drawn a blue house, just like that one that we saw when we were on holiday, when we stopped and we were all thirsty and the guy said we could use his tap to fill the water, right? Now give it three weeks and ask the person concerned, what did their son draw? Which one's more likely to get the correct answer? The one that's structured into a narrative, into a story. We are terrible at this. The independence movement barks instructions at people. We tell them what they need to do. We criticize everybody. But if we were to sit down and explain why is it, are we really just saying it's the, the British political elite? Why is it that independence would be good for you? We, we don't do this. Another thing that we don't do is try to work out what that means for people. So another one of the things that is not in dispute is that decisions are primarily, certainly at first, decisions are almost entirely emotional. I know we all think we're rational beings, but if you don't know about system one and system two thinking, you should learn. System one is the part of your brain that does things like breathing and walking. Now, if I was to ask you how you walk, you could no more tell me than, than you know, flying the moon. It's not. You've got, no, you've got no knowledge about how you walk. You don't understand or have any access to the information which tells you at which point in your forward lunge you should extend your right foot so you don't fall on your face. So this part of your brain does almost everything that you do. Mostly, it works in the basis of previous prior learning. It is very straightforward. If you've done it a thousand times and it worked, it will do it again. But that's what the system one brain does. It's very, very dumb and it's extremely fast. System two brain is what you think is you. This is the part of you that you believe is you. It's the bit that talks to you. It's the bit that you're aware of. It's the bit that you use for thinking as opposed to doing. That gives you your personality. This part of your brain is incredibly sophisticated, extremely clever, and phenomenally slow. If you doubt that, take uh, try the following. If you're out with a walk with somebody sometime, and you're just going out a gentle walk, sneak into that walk at some point, could they count backwards from 307s? And what you will find is, once they've done 293, uh, 286, they maybe get uh, 279, and then you'll find they stop walking. Because this part is so powerful that it overwhelms the other part of your brain. Right, so how do we make decisions? You should also know that your emotions have kicked in because your emotions are largely triggered by system one in your brain. So it's things like, there's a tiger. You, you need that to be done very, very quickly. And you need your brain to give you the best chance that you possibly have of escaping the tiger so it fills your body with adrenaline, with all the various hormones that will give you a full fight or fright response. And that way you're ready to go. If it turns out it's not a tiger and it's just a shadow, doesn't matter. Too late. Your body's got all them hormones in it anyway. This is why we find it very, very easy to lose our temper and much harder to regain our temper afterwards. And here's the point. Throughout your life, your mind has always told you how you feel about a decision before you've made any rational thought in that decision. So if you see a car, you, you don't have to calculate its brake horsepower or its miles per gallon or range before you've decided whether you want it or not. That's instant. Your subconscious will tell you instantly. Everything is emotionally driven, not rationally driven. Nobody ever made a decision on the basis of numbers. Sometimes we change our decision based on numbers that we see after we've made the first decision, but decision-making is an emotional process. Are we playing effectively in the emotions of our target audience? Do we do it well? Do we even bother to talk about them very much? We all notice emotions which are related to us much better than we talk about emotions to, and related to other people. If you put a picture of a wind turbine up and say Scotland's got lots of renewable energy, so what? What's that got to do with me? My electricity bill's no better. And what this is telling people is we don't really care about them because we're not talking about them and their lives as they are currently lived. 
that's our mistake. We expect them to somehow fill the blanks in between the point at which they go, well, we've got lots of renewable energy, and then when they realise that actually this could reduce their electricity bill, we make them do all the work. We think that a wind turbine will win people over to independence. It won't. Putting wind turbines into a story that includes them and their concerns right now, which will be the cost of living in their energy crisis, that's what wins you independence. We don't do it. We're very bad at it indeed. Other than our stuff, we know images matter, colour matter, tones matter. People don't like being instructed. They like being invited. They like being included. They like to feel respect. All of these things will enhance people towards making a decision that we want them to make. But what I'm saying is, if you stop and you think, who should we be trying to emulate? Not better together. We need to emulate supermarkets. Stop and think about it. Who is very good at getting you to do something you wouldn't otherwise do and what do they do? Does a supermarket ever spire a leaflet through your door which says, cabbage, with a picture of a cabbage? We've got lots of cabbages. Because that's what we do with, for example, wind turbines or whiskey. No, they show you in your kitchen, a proxy for you in your kitchen, chopping it away and making something nice to eat. Almost always, almost always with children or loved ones or partners or because they're going out to go and do something exciting. Suddenly, cabbages are a crucial part of your story about how you're getting through the rest of the day. And this is who we've got to learn from. We have got to get much, much better at leading people towards where we want them to get to by providing them with effective stories that tell them about their life as it has lived now and how independence can make it better which is to say, we've got to start solving people's problems with independence. We don't. We don't use Scottish independence to solve people's problems. We broadcast that at them. Next chapter in this is about our target audience. It's based on work that we did in the Scottish Independence Convention a few years ago. Now, it's out of date because it was a few years ago, but the nature of the work means that it's not that far out of date. One thing you will find that we don't do, which, but which people that win do, take our target audience seriously. I look at debate and discussion and everyone's got a theory about what it is that's stopping a group of people that will make up, that will win us at this over onto our side. If you look at what underpins who that group of people is or what it is that would bring them over, you'll very quickly discover it's absolute sheer guesswork. In fact, very often it reflects the prejudice of the person, the political prejudices the person had before they started this. So somehow people that want a more conservative message always find a group that needs a more conservative message in their minds, and people who want a more radical message do it the other way around. So what do we actually know and how do you find out? Okay, we've got to do attitude research. It's, it's, that's what taking an interest in your target audience means. Got to ask them questions, not in an anecdotal on the doorstep sort of way or, or somebody I spoke to in the co-op. I mean, we've actually got to go and do this systematically. And this is when you discover that all the material that we are working from is largely rubbish. So there are two kinds of opinion polls that exist. One of those polls is what I would call a public poll. Either you have this opinion poll because you already know the answer to the question and you want it into the public domain. So you just go and you ask the question in the public domain. Or it's an opinion poll that's commissioned because the people commissioned they don't really care what the answer is. So the first one of those, we just did it. I mean, we just did it as part of a coalition on PFI. We know flat out, straightforwardly, that PFI is really unpopular. And it turns out it is. 4% support in Scotland for private ownership of hospitals and schools. So we just asked three questions. The sole purpose of which was to get those answers. The example of the second was usually just a newspaper or a business that, that doesn't really particularly care what the outcome is, but it's a PR tool to get people to come and buy the newspaper. Or You've seen lots of those ones, which is 9 out of 10 UK voters think that the orange sweetie out, the quality street's the best or the worst or whatever. They don't really care. Those are useless. Those polls are no very little value in preparing strategy. They don't. That's not how you prepare strategy. There's another kind of opinion poll, and you've not seen it, because it's private. These are strategic polls. And these ones are commissioned in a completely different way. When you do a, a public opinion poll, what you're really wanting to do is get as many questions about different subjects in as possible. So a lot of these opinion polls, you actually just buy five questions. But when they stop someone in the street, that person is getting 30 questions from six different clients. That's what these polls do. They're not 
much help to us. They don't really give you the kind of information that the ones that we've got are. The, the ones that you we would do here, that we should be doing for public attitude research work, they do ask a, a range of questions, but they dwell a lot more. They ask a lot more questions about the respondee. Who are you? Where do you live? What's your income like? Are you in a trade union? Do you work in the public sector, private sector? Because the answer is that it's, when I say we want to take an interest in our um, target audience, we want to take an interest in our target audience, not just how they respond to the things that we want them to respond to, but to actually find out about them so that we can categorise them and delve deeply into what's going on and why. Now, that's quantitative research, and we've only really done this once that I can find in the entire independence movement since 2014, and that was the one that's, that the Scottish Independence Convention did. Late 2017, but since it was dealing with very generalised questions, they were very, very broad, very general, about where people were and why they were where they were, I don't think there'll be a massive change in the underlying um, messages that we found. This was paired with two separate groups of qualitative research work. Now, I just pulled out of saying what they actually were until I just point out what I've described in an opinion poll is quantitative. You are counting things. That tells you how many, but it doesn't tell you why. You need qualitative information to find out why, otherwise you're just guessing. And there's a number of ways to do that, but the ones that we, one that we used was focus groups. Now, I know they've got a bad reputation, and people say, oh, focus groups, yeah, I know, but they're still used extensively in social research because they work better than almost anything else. They're actually not, they don't. There's a fashion now for doing lots and lots of one-to-one -one interviews because focus groups do tend to drag the whole group in the direction of one, but they're still regularly used. And the key is how you run them and what you do with the information. So we run a whole group of focus groups. And the set, we did that again when we were trying to do some work on how we present ourselves. What colours do people like? What tone? What language? What words? What images? What what actually reaches people? So that was the second half. What sorts of things do we find out? Who is our target audience? Who are we targeting? Well, first of all, we know that about 25 to 33% of the population are what I would call a unionist. They are ideologically committed to the union. If you told them that Scottish independence would make them better off, they would still vote against it because it's a ideological position. But the other side is about the same number who you would call, at the other side, who you would call nationalists. They are people who, if you told them that it would, that it would definitely make them a little bit worse off, they'd vote for it anyway because they fundamentally believe that Scotland should be independent. But neither of those two groups are moving. What that leaves is a group of about 40% in the middle. And we've got to stop thinking of them as unionists and nationalists. What they are are people who voted yes and people who voted no. No more than that. They're just people that made a different decision on a different, uh, a different decision on a given day a certain number of years ago and are making decisions if and when they're asked again now. They are the people who we win all of this on. So we quickly get to the point where we realise that this means that we've got an upper threshold on what we can achieve for uh, Scottish independence. We cannot get more than 70%. If we were getting to 70%, beyond that, we are not going to go further. On the other hand, and I can come back to this, on the other hand, we know that 55% of the population has supported independence at some point or another. So that's our threshold for me. If we can't demonstrate 55%, we need to get back out until we can because we know that that's possible. And beyond there, any step between 55 and 70 just gets progressively harder. I have no doubt that we can hit 60% if we do everything right. We can't get 70% support. And in between the two spots, I don't know where, where we are. I don't have enough data or information at the moment to be absolutely confident about how far into the 60s is possible. What do we know about that 40% that we're looking at, or maybe more specifically the 20% roughly, which aren't on our side yet? Well, what we can find out is there's no one group of people. This is important. There is no group, there's no demographic group that's big enough, susceptible enough to change that if we just got that group, we win independence. So you've heard this lots of times, it's about the affluent middle classes. There's not enough of them, not even close. If we got um, higher rate taxpayers and all of them had voted yes, it wouldn't have, it would only have closed about a fifth of the gap 
from 2014. It's not pensioners, because pensioners, yes, they've got large groups of people who are not independent supporters, but that group also has among the lowest likelihood to change. They're not a target on. It's not public sector workers. It's not private sector workers. None of these groups has one contiguous cohort in them, which if you could just win them, that's you. So who is our target audience then? Well, the key is that it isn't one cohort. There's lots of pensioners that are susceptible to change. There's lots of public sector workers that are susceptible to change. What's the private sector workers are supposed susceptible to change? It's not a single category. The way that I encourage people to think about it is our target voter, our target person to which we are trying to target the message, is the next most. So think about your friends. It's the next most. It's the first person who voted no out of all the, their peers who voted yes. So it's the next most potentially pro-independence farmer. The next most potentially pro-independence lawyer. These are who we are going for. So if you think about it, not in terms of a neat demographic group, it's not about the one group. It's about who among all the groups is the next most susceptible person. That's trickier to target. I'll come on to how we do that in a second. What do we know about those groups? Well, again, quite a lot about that, these, these target voters, these people who we're looking at for this work. The first thing to say is, well, why didn't they support us in 2014? These focus groups were all carried out by university with professional facilitators. They were very specifically designed not to bias the, the group because that doesn't help us any. Those of us who reviewed this work did all the best practice, such as writing down all of our prejudices in advance of what we thought we were going to find. So if you write that down and then you just find everything you thought you were going to find, you need to ask yourself, Am I just seeing in this what I'm looking for it? So if I tell you that um, out of six focus groups of eight people, one in Hoyk, one in Inverness, two in Glasgow, two in Edinburgh, not a single person liked the No campaign. They all hated the No campaign. Even the noest of No voters hated it. And every single person liked the Yes campaign. Certainly they saw it as being as being the non-party political, they were very positive about it. They liked what we were offering. They liked the idea that Scotland could be independent. They liked to feel that things could get better and that we could be in charge of making things better ourselves. They didn't think we could deliver. It's not what we were offering. It's the ex expectation of delivery. So they might have hated the No campaign, but when the No campaign said, they can't do this, they're no good. Scotland, they can't do this. Scotland isn't good enough. One of the focus groups, a woman expressed guilt four or five times over the course of the focus group. Now, the facilitators were told not to go after things individually because we were trying to keep it broad in general, but I couldn't resist any further. And he says, listen, you've expressed guilt three or four times now. Could, do you want to explain? And what she said was, well, you know, I'm kind of progressive and I want to see a better Scotland. I'm really pissed off with a lot of the politics in London. But... My daughter just graduated and she's got a good job in the public sector. And my son graduated about four years ago and he's got a good, secure um, private sector job. But we're just about to pay off the mortgage and things are going really good for us and we're just worried. We're really worried that if we do anything, it could threaten that. And the guy says, that's fair enough. Why do you feel guilty about it? And she says, eh, because if you don't change, how do you get better? And I thought, get me that woman, get, put that in a bottle. That's it. If you don't change, how do you get better? She did that all herself. This is the voters that we are having to deal with. It is all about their confidence in our ability to deliver. If I was to see in their evidence that people thought that if we were to be able to reduce our offer, so if we could make what we were offering less utopian, less exciting, less positive, and then that would encourage them to come in our direction, I would be telling you that. But there's no evidence of that whatsoever. And in fact, the theory says it probably wouldn't be. And if someone doesn't take a chance, you can't increase the likelihood to take a chance by reducing the incentive. It doesn't make sense. We found that out. And it was all about confidence, their confidence in our ability to deliver what we were talking about. One of the things that we did as well was a little test. So you all know about demographics, but are you familiar with psychographics? So if demographics is to take people and categorise them by external factors such as age, sex, gender, location, income. 
Psychographics is to take people in and to categorize them by internal psychological factors. So we thought we'd take a shot at this because there's quite a lot of theory about this. And we put in a series of questions which involved, there's a series of standard questions you can ask in marketing which reveal various forms of self-confidence. So questions like, how much do you agree? No matter what the future holds, I think I personally would be able to deal with it. That's personal confidence. Um, no matter what the future holds, I think my community can deal with it. So that's collective confidence. And a, a couple of questions which are just indicating risk aversion. We're all risk averse. It's just a question of how much risk averse we are. We tracked that against all the other factors that we could find. And the findings were quite clear. First of all, low personal confidence is a very high marker of likelihood of voting no. Actually, there's a very strong theory about this, which a lot of this work came from the US. And there they did this work on the National Rifles Asso Rifle Association. What they discovered was that you don't buy guns because you're brave. You buy guns because you're fear. The National Rifle Association contains members who are among the least personally confident in America. They're all digging bunkers in the back gardens because they think the blacks and the women are coming to get them. And so that's why they buy guns. Right, so this is entirely reinforced with us. But there's also another interesting finding, which is that the no voter as opposed to the unionist. The no voter is much closer to the psychological profile of a yes voter than to a unionist. Actually, there's not that much to tell between the self-confidence of an old voter and a nationalist. It's the harder core unionists who stand out a little bit here. Nevertheless, this keeps reflecting the whole point. The personal self-confidence is key. There is a lot to do with imagery. There's a lot to do with messaging. We've got to stop barking instructions at anybody. Right, every instruction is met with hostile. So just look at anything. Are we telling them they have to think, feel, believe, do, see? You must, you must, you must. Okay, stop doing that. It doesn't work. Go to invite them in for a conversation about their future and make it relevant to them. We've got to go to them, not telling them what to do. We've got to stop this imperatives. We've got to start explaining again what difference this makes to them? This, this came across, well, you know, that's great, but what, what does it mean for me? We need to do a lot more of that. We need to build into this a sense of place, location, who's speaking to them. There's a very strong sense that people prefer these messages when they think they're coming from people like them. So uh, to give you an example, we did a whole bunch of tests of different kinds of photography. And overwhelmingly, what didn't get done well is the super polished images that are high, highly colour saturated that look like you get them on, you know those leaflets you get for banks, which everybody in the leaflet looks like they're about to start a, new, a business. You know, even if they go fishing with their kid, they, they pose and it's all, they don't like those at all. They don't want to be sent more marketing material by a bank. What worked really well was selections of photographs which were literally snatched from, the, from life, from high streets, from communities, uh, with people engaged in emotions. You could have probably guessed that. It was quite striking, the extent to which even our visual communication is a bit inhuman. If you look at a lot of the materials that come out from all of the independence movement, they're text heavy, they're numbers heavy, the images are stock images and they're very posed. And of the ones that aren't heavily posed, they're almost all of landscapes. You know, highly saturated, highly... Saturated is mean the colour of strong. Um, highly saturated landscape shots. One was never put out pictures of urban Scotland when we were doing work, and that's, but that's where most of Scotland lives. So we're not communicating effectively with people visually as well as orally. Time to drop yes. Yes is not helping. Yes is the club that our target voters didn't join in 2014. For them, yes, is a heritage industry, a nostalgia thing. Great fun if you were into bros in the 1990s, but the revival ain't any interest if you weren't at the time. Um, nobody knows we've even got a campaign going. Terrible. So this is in 2017. We asked everybody what they thought of the ongoing independence campaign. Six focus groups, eight people per focus group all over Scotland. Not a single participant even knew there was an ongoing yes campaign. The facilitators were shocked by this. Didn't, couldn't believe this. But political Twitter's full of it. 
<laughs> there you go. They, they came back and they pressed. And I, I, I joke, no, one person in one group said the following. Ah, wait a minute, I got caught in traffic when I was doing the shopping the other day. And I saw maybe two blocks or three blocks down the road, there were like salt tires were going across the road. Could that have been something? That's our level of impact. That's what we are reaching. And we think otherwise. And the truth is that now, for an enormous number of people, particularly young people, we could stand in a field with a banner that said yes, and they wouldn't have a clue what it was about. Yes, what? I mean, this is 10 years ago. Our youngest voters were six years old. They, they had no recollection of what yes means. The brand isn't working. Nothing about yes is working for us. It's dear to my heart, as you all know, I was just looking there and half of my bloody t-shirt space, in fact, more than that, three quarters of my t-shirt space is taken up with old yes t-shirts. I'll never dispose of them, but we have got to get away from yes. It doesn't work for us anymore. Okay, developing a story, balance of hope and fear. This is something else we tested. So we've, we understand that we've got to develop a story and we understand that it's got to be about people and about them and engaging them and, and emotionally relevant to them. Okay, but how do we balance? What's the hope? What's the fear? What does this story look like? Well, the hope-fear element. We tested this. And it, I mean, it, it was almost futile because we knew what we were going to get a result. Fear hope works so much better than hope fear. Fear fear is a disaster and hope hope doesn't work either. So to give you a rough idea what those different things are, hope hope is everything's great and it'll be even better. Fear fear is, oh, you should be really scared and it might be tough in an independent Scotland, but it's a whole different kind of fear. Hope, fear is Scotland can be brilliant, but everyone's so dark just now that we will luck if we get there. And fear, hope is it's all terrible, but we can um, make it better with Scottish independence. Right, the last of those works out. Set, set up a problem and solve it. So always think in terms of fear, hope, and what emotions it's pulling in and various things like this. Because we need to get our story together. But the other part I'm going to encourage you all to think about is this question of how we deal with the confidence in our story structure and messaging. So what we're trying to do is get someone to do something they otherwise wouldn't do. And we now know that the reason they're not doing it is a lack of confidence in landing. So what I did was I just took that analogy and said, right, OK, you've got to get a colleague or a friend, a loving a family member to jump across a ravine. The jump is doable, but it's quite a, a jump and they might twist an ankle or break an ankle or something on the other side. It's not, it's not, a, 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 it's not a shoe in. OK, they don't want to do it. What are your options? Right, so basically there's three things you can do. You can disincentivize inaction, so make it not taking action worse. You can incentivize action, so you can take the action and try and make the action itself appear more attractive. Or you can remove risk, so you can take the content of the action and make whatever it is that they're worried about less worrying. So to put it another way, in this analogy, um, you're standing on this side of the ravine, you could set fire to the grass. So now suddenly they're standing amid a grass fire, that changes the calculation. You could throw a mattress down at the other side and say, there you go, the jump's not as dangerous. Um, or you could put a sign up at the other side which said free ice cream. So you can increase the incentive, increase, decrease the disincentive, make, make it less likely for them not to do it. Um, or you can take out risk. So what should we be doing? All of them. That's the key. We need to do all those things. We need to make the jump more valuable to them. And again, that's about their lives. We need to take the risk off where they are and make it worse without plunging them into despondency. Remember, a bit of fear makes people, a little touch of fear makes people more likely to act. A, a, a good dose of anger makes people too more likely to act, but too much too much fear paralyzes people, and too much anger just means that they will act. But you're very very much not in control of what they do. So it's about managing these things and not getting too carried away. We're all fear. I mean, we are project fear. If you go out there and you look at what our messaging actually is, it's constantly about Tories. The Tories are coming to get your NHS. We're the new project fear. We need to get this into people's heads, but to be quite honest, if there's somebody in Britain that doesn't know that the Tories are bad for them and Britain ain't do them any favours, I haven't met them, and I'm talking about Wales, England uh, and Scotland, 
So we need, we, can, we need to harness the fear. We don't need to generate any more resentment, fear, anger. We, we focus on that far too much. But we, like I say, we don't make people understand how we are the solution to that fear. How is, how is Scottish independence solving that fear for them? And we never, and this drives me up the wall, we never stop to ask them where they see the risks. What is it that they, makes them nervous about us? The de-risk element of it. So we've got to get the balance between all these things correct. And we need to build a story, or actually more effective, more accurately. We need um, a number of stories. I should have mentioned at the beginning, you cannot run a campaign with everyone pushing in different directions. Don't all have to parrot the same words. It doesn't have to be centrally controlled. We can be pushing in different ways, but we've got to push in the right direction and the same direction, whatever it is. So we can be as... I I get this argument about it's either diversity or it's central control. No, it's not. It's not. That's not a a trade-off. We need some coordination so that we all know that our diverse efforts are pushing in the right direction. We, We need to think about it in these terms. So we, we can have hundreds of stories, thousands of stories, but they've all got to be stories that push in the same direction. Otherwise, they don't work and they undermine each other. And do not believe that you can tell one person one story, tell another person a different story, a conflicting story, because you'll get caught. Then you're a liar or a chancer not to be trusted. And that's a mistake. Right, so we've got to build these stories because that's what's going to win, is it? We're going to win this through the better story. The better story always wins. Three specific things at this point that we need to be doing. And the first of those is to build confidence. It's a simple issue, which is they don't think we've answered or covered the technical questions that need to be answered effectively to get to independence. They don't think we're prepared. Their proxy for this, at the last referendum, their proxy for this was that they asked us about currency and um, we didn't have a plan B. Now, I, I get really frustrated with the analysis of this because some people think that means that there's a correct currency answer and if we could just find it, we'll win. No, 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 no. Nine out of ten people don't know what the right currency for an independent Scotland is. I mean, it's just a highly technical question. It wasn't about the currency. It was a proxy for whether we were planned and if a crucial, for them, if a crucial question, like what currency are you using, didn't have a plan B to a plan A which was outside of our control, they concluded that we didn't know. We didn't know what we're doing. Pensions had the same impact, so did the European accession stuff. Now, we've got to start answering these questions, but we're not going to answer, I'm sorry, the Scottish government's independence papers are useless in this regard. Utterly useless. They're just another pile of statistics about Happy, happy Scotland in a world with no problems. They've just stuck out a paper about the European Union that doesn't explain how much it's going to cost us to join the European Union. Nobody's scared about joining the European Union. Their nerves are about what's the process and how much is it going to cost us. And that's what we're not answering. So we've got to start answering these questions. We've got to do it honestly and openly. Right, how would you do that? Well, in the UK, there's a way to answer big, complicated questions that have got weight and which are taken seriously. And they're called Royal Commissions. I haven't done many ages, but the Royal Commission was a great model for that. Now, we don't want a Royal Commission. We couldn't have one anyway. So what I've proposed in the paper is that we establish a National Commission. Get a dozen respected commissioners with real expertise across the areas in which we need to work, uh, come up with answers. Resource a proper office to really work with them under their guidance independently to come up with the best possible answers to those and make sure everybody understands it and knows it. That's the answer. Now, we need this work done anyway. This um, prevaricating about, oh, it'd be great if we were back in the European Union. That doesn't get you back in the European Union. What gets you back in the European Union is preparing for negotiations because you understand the actual processes and what the, what the downsides and the pressures are going to be. So we need to do all that work anyway. But most importantly, we need to get that work done in a way that the public can see. Now, this is taking me to a subject which um, wins that slightly. This is a massive project. We're dealing with borders, currency, military um, and defence, energy, cyber security, pensions. It's a wide range of things. We know you can all drop the list of things where somebody somewhere has said, ah, but we don't know if you know how to do X or Y. We need to come up with answers for how to do all those things. That makes it a very big project. 
Now, if you're doing a project and you're managing a big project, you will have some methodology for managing your project's progress, a progress checker. Now, um, that will tell you how far through your work program you are now, are you in time, are you not in time. So they, they would be operating to one of those anyway. And what I'm suggesting here, and just as story doesn't mean fake, theatre doesn't mean shallow, it just means a way of letting people see the thing that's happening, we need to create some theatre out of this. We have got to show the public that we took them seriously, that this time we're actually putting the work together to answer their questions because we are showing them the respect that they due, and we don't show them the respect that they due. We are showing them the respect that they are due to answer the questions that they raised. We need to take them with us. We need to hold their hand and bring them gradually along with us. So what I'm suggesting is take that progress indicator and turn it into one clear project plan indicator and externalize it so that they can see it and that they can see that progress indicator gradually being completed. So if you decide that currency is 17% of the work program because you've made an accurate assessment of it and you're sitting at 50% and you complete that, you publish the paper, you let everybody see it and that takes you to 67% complete. Now, if you've seen this idea presented as an independence thermometer, I'm sorry, I'm not quite sure how that happened. We can undo that problem, but this idea of creating a theatre, a a way of creating theatre, which means that we don't come out one time at the end of all of this and say, ha ha, public, remember when we disappeared three years ago and said we're going to do all this work? Here we are, we're back, we've got all the answers. But rather, every step of the way, as far as we possibly can, we are showing them work, us working. Remember, we need to do this work, but more to the point, we need to show them us doing this work because that's what will build up their confidence that we know what we're doing. So let's get a national commission done. Let's answer all the questions and let's start to present the work and the content in a way that leaves, forget unionists, just forget them and God's sake, forget the union, the no campaign. Just get them out of your eyes line altogether. They're never going to accept any of this stuff. But imagine a target voter that you can think of we have got to show that target voter us working in a way that makes us effective. How do we get the second part of the task done, which is to tell these stories? We don't own the media. Now, if you own the media, if, you're, if you've got lots of money, power connections, or large-scale control of the media, you can just tell stories at will. You just do it through the media. We don't have that. We don't have establishment Scotland behind us. So what do we do? Thankfully, another piece of the comms theory, which I kind of dropped, is that the ways that people were taking in their information before have changed. So the top-down model of influence has changed, or at least that's what voters say. So if you were to ask, and it's a massive, massive change, if you were to ask people 50, 60 years ago, how do you make your opinions about, form your opinions about subjects which are ones you don't have an immediate view on, their go-to would be to look to an authority figure that they trusted. Politician, lawyer, judge, media, journalists, civic figures, somebody, scientist, somebody. And they would have a rough sense of who they aligned with in terms of their values, and they would look in that direction, and they would find out what they're saying. So, I mean, very simply, if you were labour-orientated, a new subject come up, you look to see what Labour said about it, and if you were Tory-orientated, you look to see what Tories... So you were taking what's called cues, like a theatre cue, theatrical cue. You were taking cues from authority. Now that's collapsed. Nobody trusts authority anymore. Which is not to say we don't still take our cues from there. We do, but we don't trust them anymore. So we're doing something else. And what we're doing with them is then negotiating those. And who are we negotiating them with? Our peers. It's no longer just what you see on the telly. It's what you all saw on the telly and then collectively discussed at the school gate, in the bowling club, at your workplace in the water cooler. These are the conversations which are nailing people's support or otherwise. We are useless at getting into these conversations. So again, in the research work that we did, spontaneously without being asked, every single person in a focus group pulled out unionists catchphrases, things like um, once in a generation, too poor, too, you know, not ready for all these things. They, they, they were all uh, 
you know, focus on the day job. All of these things were being cited over and over with people in the focus groups. They were asked about, yes, post-independence, yes, post-referendum, yes, slogans. Nobody came up with them, which is hardly surprising because we don't do them. In American politics, these are called talking points. These are tiny little nuggets which are not designed to be repeated like drones, but to stimulate conversations. The, the idea is to stimulate a conversation where you are. Right, so how are we going to do this? How are we going to get to the people that we need to get to and have the conversations that we need to get to? It's about 400,000 people. If you look at, we, we absolutely, Boyle Park have to get to 55%. I think we need to get to about 60%. I'm sure we can. That's about 400,000 people. That's perfectly doable. So how might we do that? Right, well, there's a method of campaign campaigning that's been developed as ancient, but it's been systematized more recently. Called, let's get various names, distribution, distributed organizing, peer-to-peer -peer campaigning, relational um, campaigning or organizing. And what it basically means is that we are focusing our efforts on talking to people who we know and who are like us. So it's about using, leveraging relationships or which exist or which are nearly there and using those to get our, our message across. So this kind of peer-to-peer organising, 30 times more effective than, our, than um, Facebook advertising. It's about 12 times as effective as putting leaflets through doors or knocking doors or all these. It's, it's massively more effective. Um, and it's been measured and it's been shown, so you can go and look at the data on that. Right, so... How would we do this in Scotland? Because 400,000 people is quite a lot of folk to have a conversation with, right? So that's where the peer-to-peer -peer comes in. There's another thing that we do, which is, how do we recruit people to come and become independence campaigners? We tell them how miserable it's going to be. Come and be an independent supporter. You can go out and knock the doors of hostile strangers five nights a week in the pouring rain. It's brilliant. We love it. Aye, but we are masochists. Most folk don't want to do that. So if you go and you look at what they do with peer-to-peer -peer campaigning, one of the pioneers of this was the Bernie Sanders campaign. Again, this isn't left-right. This is just to take, if you've got lots of money, if you're Amazon, you don't use peer-to-peer -peer campaigning. There's no need. It's always groups like Black Lives Matter did a lot of this, the Bernie Sanders campaign. Any group that doesn't have privileged access to media, it works for them. What they did was the opposite of what we did, what we do, which is they got people in and they said, be a Bernie supporter. It's really, really easy. Super duper easy. It won't take more than 15 minutes a month, you know, whatever it was. The way they did this was they, they had small town meetings. They got a thousand people or 500 people coming to a town meeting. They were all told to go away and tell 10 of their pals how easy it was by inviting them to lunch and explaining it or out to the pub or whatever. And suffice to say, in the space of about three to six months, he went from town halls to filling 60,000, 70,000 football stadiums with active campaigners because they made it sound really easy. This is what we need to do. So one proposing that we do here is create a campaigning entity whose job it is to identify the 100,000 independent supporters who are willing to answer the following question, which is, in the positive, which is, would you be willing to become an advocate for Scottish independence if it took no more than 15 to 20 minutes a month maximum and we never ask you to speak to somebody you're uncomfortable with speaking to or that you don't already know. Great. Once we've got 100,000 people that'll do that and that shouldn't be tricky, I mean, really shouldn't. We can get that many people in March. What you do is you, you get them together and you pair them. We use this pairing or budding system. Everybody can take about three to four potentially paired people. And that becomes the person that you're speaking to. But more to the point, that person hears everything from you. Almost everything, apart from the stuff that's in newspapers, it's coming via you. So what you have is this pairing model. So what we need to do is organize a mass canvas. We don't even know where our current voters are. Our canvas date is terrible. Uh, we need to do a fairly mass canvas. That's quite intensive. But we need to know where our potential voters are. We need to know as best as we can who's not to bother about because they're hardcore in the unionist camp. We've got to identify these 400,000 people and here's a canvas. So what you do is you go one question, um, yes, no, independence, and then if it's a yes, you follow up the question about would you do 15 minutes? And if it's no, you follow up with one question designed to work out where on the spectrum they are between just not quite yes all the way to or my dead body. Um, 
that that's and then we've got to sort them out. So then we've got to start the pairing. Now we can do this in lots of ways to which is self-selection and basically go and look and say, right, well, here's households. This place is full of susceptible no voters. Who could go and who knows them? How do we get to them? How do we do them? You can have self-electing. We've got a, an online website that does this very effectively. Pairs people up. So if you're indie curious, you can come up and say, I'm I'm interested in independence enough that I wouldn't mind hearing some stuff from somebody. I'm this age, this sex, this geography. Offer me some people I could talk to and we've I've got a database of potential people that could pair up with them. So once you've got all these people paired and matched, and again, there's a lot of detail in here about how you go about doing that. What you're doing is using that as almost your only, primary anyway, communication methodology. It would all be supported by a central team and probably on an app. Now, how people communicate once they're paired doesn't matter. Me, pop our coffee every time. I like face-to-face. Um, some of you might like that WhatsApp. Um, some of you might just do text. The other, my second favourite is email. I just, just email me. I'll, I'll read it after email. Some folk will pick up the phone. But be frank, frank, if you want to send it by snail mail or pigeon post, I don't, it doesn't matter. Whatever works for the two of you, because this is all about the comfort of the relationship, making the two people in this relationship feel comfortable so that they can pass information between each other. Right, and once you've got that set up, you would have... Um, four basic tasks. One, whatever message that we want to get across, anything, it goes via the, the, the buddy. And what the buddy, what the advocate does is takes whatever message, they get sent through the message, pass this on, and then they translate it. So if I'm passing it on, if I'm paired with two people, one of them's one of my pals or one of them's an accountant friend of mine, if I've got to take that message and send it to the accountant, I'm going to say something like, oh, this is suboptimal. And if I'm going to tell my pal, I'm going to say, this is shite. Because that's the language that we talk with in those two groups. It's about the language with which you're, communicate, you're comfortable communicating with your peer. So the first thing that you're doing is constant message translation into the most effective possible language, which is not just tailor-marketed to a Facebook group or a demographic. It's tailor-marketed to your pal, your cousin, your your colleague. Second thing it does is to um, provide a means of answering their questions. So we need to get a big question and answer database. So they answer the question. And again, you get the answer. You get it over the database. You pass it back over to them in whatever language works for them. Sometimes it's too complicated. You just give them the basics and you send them over a very short briefing. You know, half a say to be four to explain it to them. Sometimes you might come across a question that hasn't been answered. Brilliant. Send it into the central team and part of their jobs to answer the question, find the answer to the question. This also builds up your database, but also tells you what people are asking. All of this lets you know where their concerns are, because these are not performative public requests for information. These are genuine personal requests between two people. So you'll find out from that, get a lot of information back from this about what, what's going on. Three feed-in talking points. Now, there can be lots of these, and you can use them or you can not use them. And again, it's all about feeding them into your conversations and the way that work. So again, at the time I first did a first draft of this stuff, I think Univision was coming up. So Univision's coming up. How do you see the talking point uh, into a conversation? Well, just try this. Just say something like, oh, there's Univision at the weekend. It'd be brilliant if we could get a Scottish entry in. Who would you choose? And then get out. Get out. We think you've got to do that. The average indie supporter has a habit of then waiting and hounding this poor bastard down with why they got to support independence so they can get somebody in the Eurovision. No, just let them come to that conclusion yourself. We're not doing this in 10 sayings. Let them find their own way there. Alternatively, if it's me, I hate Eurovision and sequence, um, sequence generally. So I might just say to my pal, the brilliant if we were independent and we could just not enter this shit show. Whatever works, it doesn't matter. Just got to be natural to get whatever group it is talking about Scottish independence in ways that aren't and that they're generating, which aren't being barked at them. So seeding conversations with talking points. We're terrible at it. That's another one of the things that we can do. And finally, um, what you would also do in these pairs is that you would have means of assessing how progress is going. Right? So, you know, if we do the old one to ten, and with seven being pretty solidly going to vote yes, um, the trick is to get as many people as possible to seven. In fact, to go further than that, which is once you've got 400,000 people sitting at seven, you've won, you know you've won. It's done. It's over. You can just go out and do the last thing. The last thing is the trigger point. What do we do now? 
Right, so we're sitting at 60% of the polls. Or we've got 60% of the people. What do we do now? Right, this is where we come to the trigger. This is the thing that I didn't want to talk about from the very beginning of this talk. Because don't make assumptions about the trigger. There's lots of them. Hundreds of possible triggers. We're obsessed with the triggers. Right, that's just the last bit before you kick this to trigger negotiations. Right, so what could it be? Well, yeah, there could definitely be a referendum. Referendum would be a great trigger. If it was disagreed by both sides, we want a referendum, that'll trigger negotiations. The fact of referendum, hard to pull off, but could work, it'd be perfectly reasonable. Westminster, yep, sure. Hollywood, sure. Different set of problems, but it can be done. Question, no question about it. We could do that. Unilateral Declaration of Independence, well, it's a bit, it's a bit um, incendiary, but if we didn't get anything, we wanted to try and see we will do this, yeah, maybe that could be a negotiating tactic to say, Christ, we better realise the game's up. One that I don't think is discussed enough is the tap on the shoulder, which is just say, we're sitting at 60%, you know, we're sitting at 60%, we've been there for a year, we're not going back down, it's over, game's up. Just negotiate. Or you could try and stonewall us a bit further, but we will prove this. And once we do, your hand will be weaker. So come and negotiate with us just now. So that's another of the techniques. There's another, there's a few more of them. But I'm going to suggest one other. And the, the thing about all of those is that they're not completely in our control. I'm a I'm a political strategist. I like to I like as much to be inside the control of the body which who's commissioning the strategy as possible because otherwise you're relying on things falling out of the sky and solving your problems for you. So so what's a referendum about? Well, a referendum is about demonstrating the public's positioning on a split proposition. So you, you have a split proposition, this or that, and you use it to, as a way to demonstrate the public's um, position on a split proposition. There is an alternative. You don't have to split the proposition. You can just do a straight down the line demonstrating numbers of support for a proposition, a single proposition. There's a number of ways you can do that, but I'm going to suggest one of them is the petition. Right? So if you've got a petition, I believe I've done all the numbers on the in the paper, that 60% is about two point and a squeak million. But it's just a bit higher, it's a bit more than that, but it's a bit higher than they got in the other one. I'm suggesting that we need to be targeting 2.1 million people who are definitely going to express independence because that takes us well over the threshold of it cannot be defeated. If you've got 2.1 million adults in Scotland saying that they support something, there is no other side. There is no, that's done, it's over. You've got a clear majority and it's not a dubious majority. So I'm saying 2.1 million people is our target. Right, if we can get 2.1 million people to sign a petition and verify it, we've shown undoubted support for an uncontested proposition. So how could we do that? Well, let's get back to theatre. We need to, this was done before, for those that know their history. 1949-1950, the Scottish Covenant was a petition that got signed by 2 million people calling for a Scottish Home Rule. And the reason it failed was that the Daily Express, which was the dominant Unionist newspaper in Scotland of the day. Um, they went through it and just found some Donald Duck's signatories, a Mickey Mouse, whatever. There was no way to demonstrate that all the signatories were had signed willingly, were real people, and that there was no duplication. That was enough to undermine it. Some things did happen because of it, but, but it didn't succeed. So what do we do? Right, okay, my proposal is as follows. Let's just get every polling station in Scotland, the normal polling stations, hire them all from a Friday evening to a Sunday evening and stick out polling cards to everybody, or equivalents. Hire electoral reform services to run every one of those polling stations, but it's not a polling station, it's a petition station. Call it the National Petition. Get it done over a weekend, create carnival and theatre. You've already got your knock-up sorted because we've already got the 400,000 people that we needed to get all paired one-to-one. So all you've got to do is now get your three, pa- get your three pairs out, let the, let the movement pull out the people who are already committed, get them in there, and at the door, all they've got to do is present the polling card and presumably, potentially, some sort of voter ID if we want to really double-check it. And what you're doing is you're relying on the credibility of electoral reform services or other to verify that every single person that signed this petition is eligible to sign it and did so of their own free will. 
From that point onwards, what happens doesn't really matter. You can again, you could sign a ballot paper and stick it in a box. You could sign a book with a bit of paper. You could press a button. It doesn't matter. The, the verification is all to do with coming through the door and checking your polling card and let you go as far as that point. All you've got to do is sit down a proposition, which is I want Scotland to be an independent country, affirm it, we get 2.1 million people, it's over. Now, I've got a whole bit in the book about what happens at this point if they still try to stonewall. At this point, we have a world of escalations. I mean, they're all there. At that point, we've got the entire moral high ground, so we can escalate in a dozens of ways. But I just want to say, I don't think this will happen. I think there's clear signs already that the, the UK knows it's going to lose Scotland eventually, because they put quite a lot of effort into, how shall I say it, persuading parts of the independence movement that even if we are independent, we should keep trident for them because that's what they really want. Right? You don't do that if you, if you think you're going to win and that we are going to lose. So um, they're already hedging their bets. And if they realise that they are going to lose and the game's up, but kicks off with immediate public diplomacy, I would do that anyway, get lots and lots, of, towards the end stages of this, get lots and lots of well-known Scottish figures, celebrities, media types, lawyers, whatever the hell, all recruited, and get them doing to meet up with key opinion formers in England, columnists, editors, journalists, radio presenters, whoever it is, just start doing public diplomacy and saying, listen, folks, we don't want this to be hostile. We've demonstrated that we've got the majority. You need to persuade your pig-headed government to get us out. And if we keep doing this, I don't have any doubts we'll get there. Right, so that's my best suggestion of how we go about doing this. Well, lots to think about there. Thanks again to Yes Sky for sharing this event with us. We'll be back next week with another podcast episode. So for now, thanks for listening. We'll catch you later. Bye now.